gentlemen welcome back to stories out of time and space i'm your regular host scott weatherly and as always i'm joined by my partner in fear julian darius julian how are you doing well, I, I, i'm doing all right but i feel a little self-conscious because um i i i just do as i'm told and so when you told <laughs> said that we were going to review the tingler uh I went out and bought this, you know, uh, <laughs> this vibrating uh, strap-on attachment. And, and, you know, it's intended for women, so it was really hard to test. I had to approach strangers, you know. It was very awkward. And now I find myself totally unprepared. <laughs> I'll tell you what, that's impressive. And that thorough, if, you know, you went out and actually reviewed that, that's going to be... Um... Now that you've done that joke, though, uh, a, a review of that device will be on the blog. <laughs> 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 but yeah getting back to 1959 the second vincent price william castle um uh, collaboration um all about interactive cinema this this is all about um, so yeah it's going to be light on themes i think really uh-huh. if we dig into this but there's still things to talk about but yeah the tingler uh william directed by william castle starring vincent price and then a very small cast. I'd forgotten how sort of like you know this is almost like a uh, almost like a play in some respects. Vince yeah. um, Price, Judith Evelyn, Daryl Hickman, uh, sorry Daryl Hickman, Patricia Cutts, uh, Pamela Lincoln, and, and Phil Coolidge. Um, so first question: Which version of this did you watch when it came to the bathtub scene or the bathroom yeah. scene? Did you have red blood? Yes. Ah, good, excellent. Yeah, the blood is pouring uh, from both the sink and it's filled the tub. Yeah, yes. so I had the, and, and apparently they they did they did that uh, in camera just by like painting the background monochrome and doing monochrome makeup uh, mm. on the actress and everything. But it's yeah. pretty cool. It's like a little Frank Miller, like black and white and red in the middle of the film. And yeah, another little William Castle touch of sort of like you know in a, in a stark black and white film and just throwing in. Uh, this red during a fear moment. Uh, it's 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 very cool. Um, we'll get into the plot a bit, but first I just want to get your first impressions of, of this film. Um, yeah, the last of our sort of fifties um, films. What was your first? What were your impressions of, of, of the Tingler? Well, obviously it's it's a sort of uh, gimmick, you know, and I and I love these sort of fifties gimmicks. I love uh, you know sort of three D, and in this case, sort of. Uh, um, they weren't actually electrified seats, but they had like repurposed World War II motors mm-hmm. underneath some of the seats. And apparently, he had uh, he also hired um, actors to be in the audience to sort of scream and faint, and they'd be taken out to a fake ambulance and stuff. Um, and and I love this kind of stuff. I love this sort of like theatrical element of, of cinema. Um, you know, and it reminds me, like, you know, when I was a teenager, I had the idea that I was going to do a play that involved a, a terrorist plot and there were going to be, like, 
actors who take over the theater with machine guns and stuff. <laughs> and of course, you couldn't do that in real life. Uh, you know, uh, especially today, like with concealed carry, uh, there'd be like, you know, a massacre. Um, but, you know, and I do think like, you know, today there'd be lawsuits over <laughs> doing this kind of thing. Yeah. It, I mean, it breaks the fourth wall as well, which I really like that whole bit at the very end when it's in the cinema and the screen goes black and you have Vincent Price's sort of voice come over and he said, you know, he's saying, uh, don't worry, don't, you know, don't be afraid. But if you, you know, you to help you just scream, everybody scream. And I can imagine the whole cinema getting involved and, and a, a really cool. And that's when the buzzard would be going off as well, because yeah. that's when the, the tingling thing would be in the, the in the audience. Um and so they called it like sensorama because they'd have things like uh, the other thing is that they'd have air blowers apparently in some of them under the chairs, so it'll blow on the back of your legs, so you think there's something touching you and stuff like it. Yeah, cool. I mean, you get this at theme parks now, but have that in a main cinema. That's such a that would be a really cool experience. I'd be I'd be quite into that. Yeah, it's um, awesome, and it pulls in the theatrical element, but it's also so postmodern. You know, this sort of like incorporating. <laughs> Yeah, when you get to that moment, and apparently there was another version that was intended for drive-throughs, where mm. you know they said like, "Oh, that don't be alarmed, but the tinkler is in this drive-through <laughs> drive-in." Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so I mean, I, it is. You get to that point in the in the film, and it's very meta. It seems very uh, you know uh, contemporary in a way. Yeah, and I, I think you know, I think William Castle was sort of. You know, I would say ahead of his time, it was definitely like a, a pioneer of some of this stuff. And um, it, it's fascinating to me to also think, though, that in the 1950s, only sort of a couple of decades after cinema's really taken off, they were already worrying that cinema mm. wasn't going to be, uh, wasn't going to survive. And they were looking for ways to bring people back in, you know, to make sure people stayed in the cinema. So that was a part of it. So it's, it's even then, like sort of 70 years ago, they were looking at this. Well, and you know, the key thing in the 50s was the rise of television. And so, mm. you know, like in cinema history, they teach that basically like all of these, you know, 3D techniques, all these gimmicks were a way of sort of how do you keep people going to the cinema when they've got one at, at home mm -hmm. uh, increasingly. And so these were sort of ways to combat television. And, and that same concern led in the 60s to you know the uh, spectacle, to you know the yes. the opus, the sort of Spartacus, the sort of, and and I think that we we see a version of that today with a rise of uh, prestige television competing mm. ever more with cinema. That um, increasingly, what fills the cinemas are these two hundred plus million dollar spectacles, really uh, that just are on a scale competing in terms of scale and, and with revive 3d um mm. in a way to try to give the viewer something that you can't quite replicate at home no and i think that's one of the things that's going to be coming i think what you know is gimmicks are going to sort of creep back in i mean um you see, you see it in 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 like boutiques or cinemas now in, in america you've got the uh, the alamo draft house and they'll do like a themed night. I mean, I saw one. Where, I've seen a couple where they do like um, they'll play Jaws, and everyone's in a pool. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, that's really cool. That's like everyone's in a swimming pool watching Jaws, and you know that sort of thing. Um, and I've, I've seen ones at Halloween where you go to a drive-in and, and it's sort of like playing like uh, Friday the Thirteenth or one of those. 
And then during it, you'll have someone running in between the cars being chased by someone dressed as, as Jason or something like that. So these Once things again, are, that's where happen. I worry about concealed carry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so much in this country and not even because of the weapons, more because of our care of like, ugh, I can't be bothered. Um, not my problem. You know. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, it does creep up. One of the things I saw recently as well from a technology point of view, we've got IMAX, obviously, you know, at the moment and you hear about films being, you know, being filmed in to different degrees being IMAX. There's another one that I think Disney is looking to, to roll out in the next year or so where you get an extra at the cinema. So instead of you, you get the screen at the front and then you get an extra 30% either side and it'll wrap around and stuff. And there'll be scenes that will sort of like wrap around and all this other stuff. So they are sort of doing it now. Technology, they're using technology to say, you know, well, you can't get this at home, you know, so. Well, and, and sometimes those things are true. I mean, I remember seeing, seeing Avatar in 3D and you know, when you watch that on TV, it's sort of like, yeah, okay, you know, sci-fi expensive blockbuster. But seeing it in 3D, there are just shots where you're looking down the depths of a spacecraft mm-hmm. that just goes on forever, and all of it is, you know, you really perceive in three dimensions. Um, and and I saw I saw the first Abrams Star Trek in one of those wrap IMAX screens. Yes, and that was so much fun. Just like I'm watching space battles. <laughs> You know, and I can really just kind of turn. I have peripheral vision of like, oh, here come you know the the another ship from the side. But but to me, that's what cinemas should be. Like cinema is spectacle, and that's not to say you know it's and, and this is not to um, you know poo poo anybody for their opinions and stuff. But like, I I don't see the need to go and spend so much money, or whatever, to go see a small drama about you know someone's life on the big screen I, those sort of things i prefer to watch especially like you see you know I, i'm not a big i'm not big into this anyway but if there's a really good one mm-hmm. i'll watch it and i actually prefer to watch those things in the comfort of my own home because that becomes more relatable and that sort of thing so when people say like oh you know auto cinema is dying it's like well no it's just moving medium i think those things will work better on on the small screen especially in streaming services if we can do that but to me if you're looking at a 30 foot screen like i want to see space battles or dinosaurs or transformers or aliens or whatever i want to see something that's a spectacle that blows me away or scares the crap out of me i want something to jump out of me that's gonna uh, i don't know that's what cinema is to me is spectacle rather than you know that that's what this film provided to some extent is it provides these little moments of spectacle in the in 59 which i thought was quite interesting yeah, and I, and I sort of feel the same way about you know I, I rarely even before COVID went to went to the cinema, um, but I do pine for the days where you know you had um, especially mid range films. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that that increasingly has shifted to sort of Netflix and streaming services. But you know, it used to be that you could make a, a you know an art film for you know a million dollars or even less mm-hmm. and you'd get it distributed and you could make you know if you were lucky you could make a hundred million you know certainly you know 25 million was a good haul on a two million dollar investment and now that just you know that doesn't e- even exist anymore um it, it's very hard to get that distributed i'm hoping that that sort of cycle will come around again and that's where streaming will come in because mm-hmm. that's what the 90s were like you know um not wanting to sort of you know give the Weinsteins any credit, but Miramax really was the sort of mm-hmm. the um, 
the the birth of that. You know, there's a number of like you know Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith. There's there's all these sort of filmmakers and these films from the nineties that people love that were very much driven from. You know, we're like, all right, you you sound like you've got a good idea. You've got mm-hmm. you know you've got some indie cred. I'm going to give you a limited budget of, you know, five to ten million. Go make your film. And then you know and we will distribute it for you. Like there was a, there was there was that ethos of bringing through these small, or even foreign sort of uh, filmmakers, and at the moment that doesn't happen unless you're being given a Marvel film. Um, yeah, and I think that's increasingly what happens is that these these people bring in a movie or they get some indie cred, and then the next thing is they're jumping to one of these spectacles that they're really ill prepared for. Um, yeah. And, and, and the other thing is that there are brilliant directors who are sort of being, you know, wasted to, to one degree or another on these, you know, mindless spectacles, um, mm. you know, and we're a little off topic. But I mean, none of these spectacles, with rare exceptions <laughs> today, can compare to like Spartacus. Right. Mm. I mean, or, you know, I mean, Cleopatra was a, was another example. I mean. Um, back in the days where they thought there's no amount of money you could throw at a movie and it wouldn't make it back if it was one yeah. of these big spectacles and then Cleopatra face. Um, but I mean, even Cleopatra is, is, you know, like that's hugely ambitious. We don't do historical epics anymore. Uh, I mean, I guess the last one was like Alexander by uh, Oliver Stone. Mm. Um, but, we, we, you know, we don't do that stuff anymore. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's hard when we do because I think again these things come and go. I mean we we, you know, we are um, y- you and I but will both watch these spectacle films and, and and approach them and and you know take different things from them. But like I honestly think things go in cycles. We are at the we have gone through. I think we've honestly we have gone through the peak of the hit the superhero spectacle film. I think we are going to be on the come down from that. I think, you know, yeah, Disney's probably going to be riding that cash cow for a long time to come, but I do think there'll be something else that comes through that will start to be sort of drive the industry further. These things happen, you know. Yeah, there's, yeah. the 70s are a very sort of like grim and gritty era. Like, you know, you've got very much that, that's a very autistic, and then it gets overtaken by this, the, the, the 80s, which was very spectacle driven. You know, that's the blockbuster era, the first blockbuster era, really, to be taken over by the 90s. Um, and then obviously then you come back round and round. So swings around about us. We shall see what happens, I think, in that space. But I, I agree, I think, mid-range films, but I honestly think streaming is going to be that place where if you have a very niche film, then that will be the kind of thing that someone, you know, some of these places will, will probably link on to, I think. Well, the one thing that's certain is you couldn't make The Tinkler today, right? Because <laughs> no. it's clearly done, well, for lots of reasons, but it's clearly done... Um, on a low budget, yeah. Uh, most of the budget apparently was spent on those devices in the theater. Yeah. Like they spent more money on that than they did on the movie. You know, today that kind of budget and that kind of movie gets uh, either you know some sort of like uh, video on demand kind of mm-hmm. thing, or it uh, it winds up on a streaming service or a cable channel as an original movie. But that's you're not going to have the opportunity to. Uh, you know, wire everybody's homes with you know electrocution or something. This is a and that's a really good point actually because this is a cinema film, like it's designed for the cinema. 
um, you know, you talk, we talk about the sort of the end of the film where it sort of it cuts out, and you have the Vincent Price talking, all this other stuff, and and the 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 interactive effects that happen. You, the, the, now, yeah, because and this is one of the things I also I like to see spectacle, but you've got to think of the, the long range. 80 percent probably more than that 99 percent i'd actually say of a, a film's lifetime over many decades will be on the small screen will be on the home screen because it only has a limited cinema release mm-hmm. and with this like you know yeah you have to sort of say i've got it on blu-ray and i do like it. it is a good film but I would. I've never seen this, and I would love to go to a screening of this, or even the, the other, the other castle, any of the William Castle films. So there's like Thirteen Ghosts or The House on Haunted Hill, those sorts of films, and have like the things going on, like do them in a cinema. I think that'd be really cool. Yeah. Um, what were the gimmicks there? I think like House of Haunted Hill had like um, some sort of like ghost on a pulley that went over the audience. Yeah, it's or a skeleton. So yeah, uh, there's a skeleton that, and um, uh, there's a skeleton that runs across the top of the audience, and there was some screaming that come out of, of speakers then as well for a part of the film. Um, and I think for Thirteen Ghosts, it was something similar that, that there would have a ghost sort of interaction. Like each of, each of the ghosts had that was three D. That was also three D. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, so you know, when the ghosts appeared, things would appear in that mist would come out, and all this. So, yeah, it was an experience. Um, you know, and, and I'd, I'd love to go and do that. Like, you know, I'd pay, I'd pay a decent cinema ticket price to go do that. Oh, sure, yeah, I would too. And I, I guess the inheritor of that is really these like amusement park rides. Mm. Um, you know, you go to like Disneyland or something, and they're still doing this stuff. Um, and it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, the seats are moving in order yeah. to give you like different perspectives on on what you're watching. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, this is like the, those 4D experiences. I mean, the one, the best one I've ever seen of these of of those would be uh, Universal Studios was is the Terminator one, which I think's gone now. Yeah. But following Terminator Two, they have like you go in and and. and um, Again, the thing is, I think this you say whoever watched these films took it and took it to the took it to the theme parks. And I, one of the things I always love about American theme parks is that sort of interaction. And Universal Studios did it best, in my opinion. Um, you went on the Back to the Future ride, and you know it's a simulator. You're queuing up to go on a simulator, but as you're queuing up, no, you are queuing up in Doc. You are queuing up to go in Doc. There's a story. You're going to queue up to go into Doc Brown's lab. You're going to get a video, and it's going to tell you an introduction, and then you're going to see Biff take over the place, and then you're like, now you are the ones that have to save us. Or <laughs> you're 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 lining up to go on a boat ride around Amity uh, Island coast, and then all of a sudden you're attacked by Jaws, and you've got the person on the boat. It's all acted. It's all interactive. It's all... I loved all that stuff. Um, and I, you know the Terminator one. I don't. Did you ever do any of these? No. Have you ever been? No. The Terminator I... one, awesome. Because you got you went in and you were going to Cyberdyne, mm. and you were given a badge and stuff. Like you would go into a presentation, and the presentation was to, to be to be presented with the t- the T one. Mm-hmm. And so they, these big robots came out of a stage, and you had something. It was like a tech demo. You were there to see a tech <laughs> demo. And then all of a sudden there was all this smoke and you'd hear the noise and then the sphere would appear on the screen. And and, and Arnie like would drive out the screen on his bike with John Connor. And all of a sudden, like there's a battle on stage and you're watching this sort of and then the T one thousand would turn up and all this other stuff. Like it was crazy. Um and like you see, there would all be the steam, there'd be stuff blowing on you, your chairs would move as you're shocking like it's totally this. And it was yeah. amazing. Um, 
I don't know. I just I would love someone to do that and be like, yeah, I'm doing this for a film because there's a feature film that's gonna do this. Um, I think yeah, that would be really too. cool. And I, and I sort of worry about one thing that that puzzles me is that I I like those experiences too, and I worry about sort of film preservation that you know we sort of assume that everything you know obviously lots of films were lost, but that. Basically, we have a digital version, and that preserves the same way that we have a book, right? You know, that preserves. But, it, but you know, I you wonder sometimes about, like, well, you're not making this on vellum anymore, right? Like, surely yeah. that's changed the impression of the book in some way. It's not the same experience. And some of those movies, like, you think even some version of that Terminator ride people would love to have on home video, even if they mm. couldn't reproduce all of this. And I'm sure that that exists somewhere. It's on YouTube. It's on YouTube. Oh, yeah. Whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because well, yeah, yeah. people filmed it, right? No, because you know, they closed it down. Universal released for a short oh, time wow. the, the background video and stuff. It's not great because you're missing the stage performance, but it's worth right. seeing. Cause if you've seen it, you go, oh, yeah, that's really cool. But, yeah, it's interesting. But um, it's not the same experience. Like, yeah, you're right. It's totally not the same experience. Um, well, but... eventually, the key thing is eventually we will have virtual reality helmets yeah. where we can produce, we can reproduce all of these experiences, and then it'll be one format again. We'll, mm. we'll be able to go through all of that. I have got, and I, I don't use it very much because I, I get uncomfortable watching it. I had one of those... Um, Oculus. Oculus, yeah. We we got one, um, and I've used it a bit, but the, because it's because of the headphones on, you got your thing on your face, and if I was watching something, and I've watched a couple of films on this, very good. You know, if you use Amazon, you're in a, it looks like you're in a theatre. You can look around, and you're in a cinema. Same with Netflix, you're in a camp a log cabin. However, my wife and my daughter, for that matter, also know that I am fully sensory deprivated. <laughs> <laughs> and so they will wait till I'm fully invested in a film and then they'll tickle my feet or poke me or something <laughs> like that, and it terrifies me. So like <laughs> it swings a runabout, like you know, you've got to make sure if you're in, if you're using one of those virtual reality, you have to trust the people around you. And that's not always, you know, possible. <laughs> yeah, and in your house it's a dangerous proposition. It is. <laughs> I was also thinking, like, like when I watched this, the Tingler, and when you, when they discover that the Tingler, you know, face hugger kind of you know, mm. thing has has gone into the loose floorboard, and the cinema is below. There's that jolt of joy that I feel of like, oh, right, you know, we're gonna have this meta moment, um, and then the screen goes black, and you have yeah. the, the the announcer, does you know, say. Uh, yeah, you know, don't be alarmed. The tinglers, you know, scream, scream for your lives. Yeah. You know, that's great. Um, but then, you know, again, times have changed. And in I live in a country where, you know, um, I know a lot of people who are school teachers and they go through uh, shooter drills every year. Mm -hmm. And I think about, like, you know, every time I've been in a movie theater uh, since the Dark Knight shootings, I think about the Dark Knight shootings and I yeah. think about what's my point of exit. And they have the, you know, it's like in the old days, they would have the like cartoons go like, let's go out to the movies, you know, <laughs> and it's like the, the snacks and refreshments to have eyes and are dancing. 
and now they always have like a title that says like in the event of an emergency please yeah. locate the exits immediately and it's like yeah you're talking about if we're all gunned down in a yeah. mass shooting event and you're just reminded of that and so there's a kind of like if there is a meta element to the cinema like when that goes dark there's a part of my brain that goes oh that's when the guy in the joker mask comes out right yeah. so, oh no yeah like if you didn't know this, even now, if this played today and you didn't know that's coming, I'm pretty sure that's the one bit that would have a legit... There'd be people that would, would get legit nervous at that point. Mm -hmm. It's slightly broken when the the <laughs> the tingler creep, creeps across the, the, the screen. Still cool. Yeah. Um, but yes, I totally get what you mean. Uh, get what you mean. Um, could we get away? Could you get away with it today? If you, you'd have to do it as a specific screening, wouldn't you? You'd have to have it as a oh, this is a this is set up to do this film. Um, watching it, it also reminded me this was replicated. And I'm assuming it's meant to be an homage to this in Gremlins Two. Yes, yes, yes. I've read about that. Um, I don't and, remember Gremlins Two enough to you know, but a massively underrated film. But yeah, that breaks like at the moment it has two. It has two versions of it. <laughs> There was the cinema version, and then there was a home video version. And this is a complete off track. We'll actually we'll go back and talk about the Tingler in a moment. But uh, in, in the in the in the Gremlins two, it breaks and it goes to static and it has the white screen. And then these two Gremlins come up and they start messing with the film, um, which wouldn't play now. They'd have to play with like flash drives and all kinds of things. But in, in it, then they get they get basically it flashes through a bunch of films, and Gremlins have inserted themselves into. A series of films and then they get taken out i think by john wayne at one point in the western and it restores back to the other film there is that's another... so awesome that's so meta i mean so oh, like it's uh, gremlins Supreme 2 or something oh gremlins 2 needs to be revisited like as a, as a it's so underrated but the other version though it gets even weirder that happens it cuts out you see the gremlins it then cuts to a cinema foyer <laughs> where because this is the home video version because obviously you're at home, at home now Cuts to a cinema voyage where someone runs in. They go down to the into the screening where you can see this is going on, and they find Hulk Hogan, <laughs> as in as in the, dr dressed in his wrestling gear, <laughs> mm -hmm. and he cuts a promo on the Gremlins, and basically says that you know um, if you if the Gremster thinks he can take on the Hulkster, then he can come down here. And he rips his shirt, and then he sort of looks the looks at the camera and says. Uh, sorry, folks. Let's continue with the film, and then the film just carries on. Wow! And even, even as a kid, I was like, "That's weird." <laughs> like, that's well, and you know, Fight Club has some of that. You know, with the mm. with the the meta stuff of uh, you know the cigarette burns and, and coming up. And, you know, and I, I love that stuff. I mean, in fact, it was that stuff that convinced me to go see Fight Club in theaters. Mm. It's worth seeing these films in these in these, and this is the thing: these cinema experiences. Because I think it adds to it. I think this is why cinema is important. Um, well, and and we'll get to it later this season. But uh, you know, the original ending of Little Shop of Horrors with mm. uh, you know with the uh, the plant bursting through the the screen. Yeah, how awesome! I mean, yeah. you know, I, I love these sort of meta moments. But again, that's different on home video. And and today it'd be like, you know, I, I guess you could do like a version of The Ring or something. You know. Uh, Sort of coming oh. out of your TV, yeah, that would be interesting actually. <laughs> I don't think they do that, um, but yeah, but but let's actually get back and talk about the film because there's there's one or two moments in this film because um, I want to visit. So the, the the story of the film 
for what it's worth is yeah. Vincent Vincent Price is generic scientist, um, and he is studying fear and as and also does autopsies. Not sure how they're related, but that's what he does in prisons, yes. no less. Um, and he meets a guy called Ollie. Um, at the prison autopsy again people just wandering around with a pass doesn't make any sense and they become friends and he meets ollie's wife who is a mute who also has a fear of blood uh, and he understands that you know, he sees this and this event triggers sort of more thoughts in his head about because if his study is with fear we then find in his home life he has a a, a, a loveless marriage which seems to be a william castle trait because it's exactly the same for um house on haunted hill and he then has this other partner in science and they are looking to understand it and they have found that when you go through a moment of fear that thing that makes your spine go rigid that thing that sends all those nerve endings a shudder is a physical parasite that lives in the human body that grows along your spine as you get more and more uh, scared called the tingler and the only way to stop the tingler from taking over your taking control of your body is to have a catharsis, is to let out a scream when you are um, scared. This then, uh, for somehow, encourages Ollie to kill his wife using fear. Not sure of the link on that one, but we'll get to that. Uh, and then he, they actually find a physical tingler. They capture a tingler, which then sort of runs rampant in a cinema and goes to the meta moment that we've just talked about. But that's generally it. This whole thing comes down to fear. Um, and yeah, sort of, it, it has a bit to me. This film, um, again, another, another sort of, uh, Vincent Price film, but Vincent Price has had a Seth Brundle sort of feel to him about, about me. Like, mm. general scientist doing things he probably shouldn't be. <laughs> yeah. He, and it's weird that uh, he sort of oscillates between. Like you know, he he goes to his his the uh, other guy's house and in, injects the uh, mute, who who the mute wife, who by the way her husband says is uh, mute and dumb. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, she doesn't seem dumb to me. What do you, you you know? But he goes and injects her uh, without her knowledge, without the husband's knowledge, uh, with a with a solution to cause her fear. Um, it kills her. I mean, this is, you know, like, clearly this is like a mad scientist. And then at other points, Vincent Price, including at the end, uh, where he discovers, <laughs> he discovers that that same guy has used props that you thought were, you know, just hallucinated during her fear sequence. In fact, they were her husband trying to scare her to death. Um, and so, you know, suddenly Vincent Price, having Intended to, you know, clearly at least been comfortable with murdering her, not bothered by it at all, uh, now becomes a sort of 50s moralizing character who's <laughs> like, no matter how you did it, it's still murder. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Yeah, he lets him go. Right. Because he, 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 he actually says, I could go downstairs and call, because he, he's got the gun trained on him. Ollie's has the gun trained on him. And he says, I, all I could do is go downstairs and call the police. And then he sort of just walks out, sort of giving it this sort of like, you know, disappointed shake of the head. Like, oh, Ollie, anything, did, did you call the police? I don't think so. <laughs> like... Yeah, and the, that's the other thing is like they, he's performing autopsies 
mm. without uh, the police ever being called. Like, you know, I know you're a pathologist, but I've got to think that even in 1959, when you call the police and the police show up and are like, her entire back has been removed. <laughs> You've cut along her spine, pulled out enormous uh, amounts of material. Uh, what the hell have you done to this body? Uh, yeah. You know, before it's been given to the actual medical examiner. I, I did like that. That is the way sort of, like, you know, uh, they bring it in and he's like, well, you, you can do autopsy. He's like, yes, yes, I can. And he's sort of like, yeah, but there's, there's clearly a procedure to this. <laughs> like, <laughs> Mad scientist. I love it. Um, I do also like one of the things I like about this is is this 50s thing that, that, that sort of we've seen a bit of is scientists just being scientists. Uh, that's their job. They, and all of them seem to have a laboratory in their basement and that mm-hmm. they have their work at home. I'm not entirely sure how it gets funded, you know, or. Like who's doing this? And uh, but it sort of seems to address it in this film, where he's like, "Oh no, I married this rich woman, and I married into this rich family, and I used her money." And again, like throughout this film, we were talking. Funny enough, we sort of talked about this a little bit before we were talking. Uh, we started recording. Is Vincent Price the villain in this film? <laughs> because he does things that are almost villainous, like you say, and then oh. sort of doesn't. But he has a charisma throughout it. Like, I really enjoy Vincent Price. But, like, there are moments when, like you say, when he seems to be suggesting, like, oh, yeah, no, I'm going to kill a woman who can't mm-hmm. scream, who can't scream to, to see what happens. And also, like, I've sent somebody out to go find a cat in an alleyway just so we can do some experiments on it. And I'm like, are you the buddy in this? I'm not sure. Like, you know, is this 50 cent morality that is slightly different to now? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he is the sort of uh, Victor Frankenstein at that point. Mm. Um, and it's funny, we see the cat in the cage, but he never comes back. Like, you keep thinking, like, oh, that cat's going to be important at the end. Yeah. You know, it's going to uh, capture the tinkler or something. Nope, nope, yeah. never going to come back. No, right. And this sort of mad scientist thing, I mean, he's literally performing. I mean, literally, he's doing human medical experiments, right? They don't even do an animal experiment. They're just like cut straight to the human. Um, and he's chosen a handicapped woman, <laughs> you know, as his victim, precisely because she has less power and can't complain. Like, this is, you know, especially, you know, in a more woke era, mm-hmm. this is even worse than it would have been seen in 1959. Yeah. I mean, talk about preying on the weak. But and the fact that the husband, also intended to kill her and says, so, you know, this thing about ruined marriages, you know, bad marriages is fascinating because he says, you know, oh, trust me, my, my wife tried to kill me many times. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what happened in Castle's home life? I, oh, I want to know. I, I, I have agreed. I want to go and look at his wiki page because I think he must have had multiple people try and kill him because that same line is used in uh, House on Haunted Hill, there's a line there where Vincent Price and his the wife there, says, Vincent Price is like, do you remember that time you tried to poison me? What fun we had. And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, what, what's your like, baseline for marriage? Like, I want to understand this. <laughs> but yeah, in this, like, you know, the uh, again, like the moment when he finds out, they find out, or they, they sort of um, surmise that the way to sort of, you know, you have this feeling, you have to have this catharsis, you have to scream. Um, they figured this out to some extent, you know, through whatever. 
And then when they find this, they meet this mute woman and they, they're discussing it. And Vincent Price is like, yes, well, yeah, if someone couldn't scream, I wonder what would happen. Interesting. And there's that sort of like, you know, that sort of like, I've just coincidentally met a mute woman. I wonder what would happen. And it, yeah, it's clear, like you say, he, well, they, but they, they, they have a fear poison, don't they? Basically sort of like, basically scarecrow's fear toxin. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I believe he was just going to inject her with that and see what would happen. But still, that seemed to be would be against her will. Um, of course. So, yeah, he does. He gives it to her, right? That's why she has got that hallucination. And stuff. Yeah. And then he gets dosed with it later when his wife, you know, finds it on a table and then puts it in his, his brandy. But it seems to only make him pass out. Well, um, I think that's I think that's supposed to be just like she just drugged him to... I think was, yeah, I think she was intending to kill him because she brings the tingler in, doesn't she, to throttle him? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the tingler actual... attacks instead yeah. of he has any hallucination. But he has because he injects himself with it and has that right. yes, very dramatic right. moment where he's sort of, um, you know, he's trying not to scream. He's letting the fear build up and, and trying to report on it. So, um, so let's get into the mechanics of that a little because. <laughs> You know, obviously, it's all absurd, right? I mean, the yeah. idea that, like, when you see the the sort of uh, the tingler, who's sort of like a centipede, you know, that's like two feet long or something, you would see this massive bulge in somebody's spine. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, you know, of course, like, where did this come from? Is this did this like evolve with humans as a symbiote or something? Never addressed. Uh, it's you know, it grows. The fear causes it to like spontaneously grow to this size. I mean, obviously, none of this really makes sense. But then I, I, I question like if if that woman can't. I mean, this whole screaming thing is a delightful conceit, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it's like you know that audience participation. It's like you know, can Peter Pan fly? Is it is it Tinkerbell, right? You've got to believe that Tinkerbell can fly. You know, everybody yes. in the audience has to believe. Um, so. This idea of like the scream is catharsis. I guess we're left to believe that that mute, like when she saw that blood early on, uh, and she sort of faints, she the tingler grew inside her spine, and it's just never going down. Like the thing about being mm. a mute is your tingler just keeps growing and growing until it kills you. That's just part of being a mute, apparently. But fear doesn't work that way. Like you, you might <laughs> right. see that and go, oh, I, I, but when the blood is taken away. You know, like the phobia leaves, like you, you return back to calm. So does it not just return? So you, mm-hmm. could you not kill it? With, you know, get rid of it with meditation? Or <laughs> yeah, well, I mean that's the that's the gimmick, right? I mean, yeah. and, and and that's kind of charming. But of course, as you say, that that's not. I've been in a lot of messed up situations. None of them have I ever screamed. Um, <laughs> you know. If I scream, it's usually like like I, the last time I was remembering uh, being in New Zealand and a mouse ran across my my foot trying to mm. escape a cat, you know, and I went ah, you yeah. know. Uh, but when I like been in car wrecks and stuff and approached people who were seriously injured, you know, I've never screamed. But it seems just it's oriented around that cinema experience, right? It's, yes. it's all about getting you in the audience to feel at liberty, right, in society to scream, right, to do this audience participation. Mm. Um, 
and and real horror junkies. Like it, it, you know, I am not a real horror junkie, but people I've known who like they just will go see any horror movie in the theaters. <laughs> they love the fear, and they love like you know you can you know screaming and grabbing the person next to them. It's that roller coaster experience, isn't it? Like, and that's the thing. I mean, again, what what's interesting as well is about the elevation. Uh, of, of where we have come from and where we're at now, that 1959, this film, I mean, that dream sequence or that fear sequence, um, the two moments that are in it we, we talked about is is she turns the ha- the, the faucets on and the, the water comes out, it's bright red and looks like blood. She turns around and the bathtub's full of blood because she has a phobia of blood. And that's the thing we've just got to be clear. clear. And a hand comes out of it and it's drenched in blood. I mean, to be fair, like in a fully black and white film, and I'd forgotten about this scene, for it to come up and then to, is, is actually quite striking and it's incredibly well done. Um, but, you know, all that moment, like that would have been relatively shocking, I think, in 59. You know, this is the year before Psycho. So Psycho came out the next year and people fainted at Psycho. You know, people were really affected by it. And then 10 years or 12, 15 years after that, so well, 30 years, after that, people were sick and fainted at The Exorcist. And, you know, you, you elevate. You watch this now and you go, it's kind of quaint. You know, it's 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 very like, you know, it's not it's not hugely shocking. It's not going to go, you know, I mean, I wouldn't show it to, to Ellie. She's only eight, but like not far off. Like, There's nothing in this I would say is is hugely um, horrifying. You know, but in '59, I think it would have been. You know, it makes me wonder. Like, if you took a film back now, you know, some of the films that people take back *Hereditary* or something like that that really sort of bother people, take, make them watch that in '59. I think you'd you'd have people's heads exploding. But well, I, it... I play Saw for my son every year, and now he's on his sixth <laughs> birthday. You know, uh, I just want him to be prepared. That's yeah, the, the Saw birthday tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but it, 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 that's what interests me is, like I say, that you know, that thing of screaming and being scared, and like it's it's just the fun of it because I think part of the screaming would be laughter as well, wouldn't it? It would be all, um, you know, legit, there'd be shocks and frights, but it's that release, literal catharsis. That like, oh my god, oh, you know, we're safe. We can, you know, you're safe. You know, there's no tingler escaped in the cinema, but it's in that moment. Um, you know, we, we want that fear. I always think about um, scare mazes. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've been I've been to you know I've been to those. I love scare mazes. I love a good scare maze. And in that moment, when you're being t- t- hunted down by zombies, you know, or actors as zombies, or or you know, killer clowns, or whatever it is, like my heart is pounding. Mm. I know I'm completely safe. Like I know nothing's going to happen. But like, you're so in the moment. And I think that sort of again, it's that sort of idea of um, you do scream, and like you say, it's that it's that uh, social acceptance of being able to do that and be like, and then laugh and go, "Oh my god, won't be silly." Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think all that stuff's really cool. I think that's one of the reasons I kind of like these films. Yeah, and I keep I find listening to you, I'm thinking about the role of the theater whether it's a real cinema or it's the, the scare maze or you know, mm. haunted house or, or whatever, um, as a sort of social environment. Mm. And, um, you know, the way in which 
we react or don't react or expect other members of the audience to to react or not react. Um, and there is, especially like you go to see a movie on opening night, there is this kind of like camaraderie. Like, you yeah. know, we did Rocky Horror earlier. I mean, I feel that camaraderie mm. in Rocky Horror. Um, you know, and, and different movies in different cultures have different rules about, you know, talking during movies and whatever. Um, I tend to be one of those people who, like, I am annoyed at, like, the old person behind me who I just hear his breath constantly. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, my God. I, you know, I want to focus on the movie. And I'm constantly annoyed by this. And then I'm constantly annoyed by people having a good time. And I'm, you know, like I'll go see a Star Wars movie and I'll be like, yeah, you know, that's a great shot. And then, you know, we'll go into some scene that means absolutely nothing to me. And I hear like gasps from the audience. And I'm like, you guys are fucking lemmings, you know, yeah. like just I, I hate it. I hate that sort of thing so much. And, and I tend to be fearful of crowds. I, I tend to mm. be I like crowds outside. But I tend to be like, I hate going to concerts because mm. it's, you know, I'm listening and I think, yeah, those notes are OK. You know, like it's not as good as it is on the on the recording. And everybody's just like dancing in the aisles. And I'm like, yeah, we're all crazy right now. Like that yeah. part of our brain yeah. that just, you know, goes with the madness of crowds and, and, and is, is part of a riot on the streets and just, you know, assaults somebody and breaks windows and and. Then you ask them later and they're like, I didn't make a conscious decision at all. That that social thing in our brains, that animal lizard part of our brains just kicks in and I'm terrified of that. Mm. So for me, I don't really I don't like being scared as much. I, I'm, you know, part of why, I, you know, like my analysis is so based on sort of taking things apart. Right. Mm. And so I'm often. I'm the guy who sits in a watching comedy and, and doesn't laugh. And I'm like, okay, I saw three moves ago what you were going for. <laughs> I'm not really laughing at this. Uh, or I'll laugh three moves ahead when everybody's not laughing. And they look at me like I'm an alien because I see what they're setting up. And it's, it's mechanical for me. So I see like the jump scare and I'm like, you know, uh, I don't want to sit in a room with somebody just going like, ah, shoving their you know hands at me. It, it works. I have a weird relationship with these I, things. But I think, I think the thing is, you're right about the camaraderie, that thing of going up. Because I've been, to, I've, I've been to films where there's no atmosphere. Like you know, There'll be a group of people in there, but it's like it falls flat. And you're watching it, and you, in your head you go, yeah, it's not a bad film, it's not a bad film. And then I, you know, but then I could go and watch that same film, and there could be a buzz in the audience. And that that elevates that film, you know. It, all of a sudden, you're like, actually, this is really good. Uh, I mean, yeah, I've had examples of that. I mean, I went to see. I was you. You say about that. I'm one of the lemmings in many cases. You know, I give <laughs> into my. You say you say reptile brain. I think Martian. I give into the Martian part of my brain. Um, is that a that a you know equator mass in the pit? That's my equator. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but like you say, I, I was. I remember going to see uh, Avengers Endgame. You know, and I was one of the people that when it pans across and you see that Cap's holding uh, that Thor's hammer, you know, he's holding Mjolnir. I'm there. I'm cheering. I was all in on that. And luckily, I wasn't alone. Otherwise, I think I'd have been marched out. But the crowd went mental. It was a packed cinema and everyone was watching and it was like, ah. But then I've also been, uh, um, you know, in cinemas 
where uh, you know we've been to horror films. I recently went to see The Conjuring Three. It's all right. It's not a bad film, not a great film, but there was a there was an atmosphere. The film was. I mean, the cinema wasn't packed. It wasn't busy, busy because of social distancing and stuff. It was relatively good. But there was a lot of people that were like, this is my first film back in the cinema. I'm excited. There's a buzz. <laughs> and because of that feeling, like some of the jump scares that any other film, I think I'd have been a bit like, it's all right. It, it's fine. But for this film, I was like, oh, yeah, that really got me. That really sort of hit me. Um, and so it works. I think there is that. I went to one experience I had. I went to see a rescreening of Terminator 2 mm. a couple of years ago when it was re-released. It was, they did the, the 4K re-release and stuff, and Jim Cameron redid some of the special effects and just tweaked things and stuff to make it make sure it didn't look crap in 4K. Um, and I went to re-see it, and I love that film. I've seen that film tens of times. And watching it on the big screen, though, again, in it, with a crowd of people that were like, oh, I can get to see Terminator 2 on the big screen, was almost like watching it for the first time. And so you're watching that chase, the where the lorry chase, you know, and, when, and then when Arnie comes off the, um, with, on his bike comes off into the the, uh, the Los Angeles sort of river things, and then circles around the side of the lorry, your heart's pounding, and I'm just like, I've seen this <laughs> dozens of times. I know exactly what's going to happen, and how this all pans out. But this is awesome, and I do think there's something about that that when you're in a crowd and people are buzzing. It just seems to elevate things. And I think that's a part of what this film's tapping into. It's, it's trying to get that blood pump and that adrenaline, that, you know, that adrenalization of like, oh, yeah, you're at an event. This is something to enjoy. Um, and I think that has a, a, you know, it's important. And I think part of some of that is lost a little bit. Mm -hmm. People forget that cinema is an experience. And, you know, not to sort of said I'm I'm smarter than Scorsese, but when he's like, oh, I don't like Marvel films because they're a roller coaster. I'm like, yeah, that's why you go to see them. That's the point. You know, that's not saying his films aren't any lesser. I love his films, but that's the point. Yeah. See, I mean, I agree with Scorsese. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, not obviously word for word. There's just factual inaccuracies there. But I mean. I don't, I don't have that roller coaster experience, and, and my my reaction ninety five percent of the time is always to feel like I'm the outsider. Um, you know, when I'm in those concerts and people are dancing, I think if the person came on stage right now and said some Nazi stuff, everybody would just be like, "Yeah, that makes sense. Let's get those Jews," and, and, and that that terrifies me. That, and I, I know that that's a part of our brains, and that terrifies me. Being in an audience where I'm, you know, it, all I need is that guy to come up to the microphone and say, see that that weirdo back there, you know, in the trench coat? You know, he is an artsy-fartsy intellectual. Let's mm -hmm. get him. And I'm dead. Um, so, you know, I... My my relationship, probably I would have hated this in, in 1959, because my relationship <laughs> is when I see, you know, it's like, you know, even when I see other people having too much fun, and it's more fun than I think is justified, you know, mm -hmm. like, they're just, like, it should, we should be having fun together, but it's like, they're enjoying it too much. I think something's wrong with them. Like, you know, I'm glad that they're having fun, but I can't get there what's what's wrong with me um and i've had so many experiences 
like usually my experience watching a Marvel movie, at least half of them is, and it's not just Marvel movies. I mean, we just, I just saw Wonder Woman 1984. Mm. I mean, a lot of my experiences watching movies is feeling trapped, feeling miserable, feeling like I have to finish this. I'm not enjoying this. I'm getting angry that this was made for this amount of money. I'm angry that other people like this and pretend that this is genius. You know, uh, certainly the case of the Marvel movies. Um, and I'm and I'm angry about these things. I'm angry about the stupidity. I'm angry that this is acceptable. And I'm angry at the jump scares and the like. Like I would, I haven't seen it, but I would probably get. You know, I might go for it. But I might get to that point with Thor's hammer and say, yeah, okay, yeah, this is a signifier that only means something in your, you know, dumb F universe. And, you know, we all saw it coming, and now you push that button and everybody goes, whoa, whoa. And I just feel like, okay, I'm, I'm out. I'm out. You people have fun. Scream your head off in the dark, you know. And yet I make you watch, we watch films on a, a fortnightly basis. <laughs> <laughs> and there's at least a couple in this season I'm probably going to feel bad about now. Um, Why? I'm making you watch Demolition, man. <laughs> oh no, you know I. But I'm very forgiving. This is one reason I'm very forgiving of bad movies as mm. long as they are. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think I'm very forgiving of just sort of fun movies that might have a few flaws or whatever. It, it's that social aspect. It's that yeah. you know I fear. I guess I, you know, my fear is not the tingler crawling up my leg, my in the in the audience, right? I'll deal if that happens. I will deal with it. Uh, my fear is the people next to me. <laughs> so if you were sat next to one of those sort of like the plants, one of those people that was put in by Castle to, um, to do that, to jump and scream and stuff like that, you know, um. It would have resulted in more irritation for you than, uh, um, than you know, joined in sort of the fear. Well, I not to talk too much about my my reaction, but I mean, you know, watching horror movies, there are those moments like you were saying, like you really feel that tension, and and I'm not immune from it. I feel that tension, and I'm like, okay, the character's going down a, a hospital corridor, something's going to jump out, yeah. right? And then, and it fakes you out and fakes you out until it finally delivers mm -hmm. when you don't expect it, right? So I know that formula. So now I'm just watching it and I'm just girding myself because I'm like, it is manipulating me. I refuse <laughs> to be manipulated. And then there are people next to me who I could hear them breathing. I hear them, you know, ready to scream. Sometimes they're screaming and I can feel the way that is causing my nervous energy to increase. And I feel resentful of them <laughs> for putting that nervous energy on me instead of feeling camaraderie i feel like i'm in an office and somebody just came up to me and said you know uh i've got these reports i, I don't quite have time to finish bob <laughs> you know like you're putting something on me i yeah. don't need to feel that way no i know what you mean i, I, I do appreciate that and it, it's interesting that um, but you know, but you but you say, but you'll go to the Rocky Horror performances, and you know, I'm assuming it's the ones that the sing along ones where it's you know, the bobbing ball on the on the lyrics and stuff, and people are all in costume, and that's a camaraderie. I mean, is that a different event? Are you, you know, you in? That, I think I think we, you make a decision to participate, right? Yes. Like I, true. when we hit the, that black screen in the Tingler, I'm like, 
I kind of want to scream, but then, but then I make a logical analytic decision, right? I'm like, do I scream? Do I resent that I'm being at, like I resent, you know, I mean, there's that stupid song, you know, I, I can make your hands clap, go F yourself. Don't tell yeah. me what to do. Okay. You know, I hate when people on stage say, all right, repeat after me. Like, I'm confident. No, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm, I'm not your minion. Um, so I, I have that resistance to this. And at the same time, it's like I kind of want to shout and give in and be part of this and see if mm -hmm. I can just relax and enjoy it. No, you're right though. I think there's that thing of forced participation. On this, I, I do, I totally get that. Especially you, you mentioned the office. That thing where it's sort of like, and now we're going to have an office quiz or a team meeting quiz, and you're like, oh bollocks! <laughs> like, I don't want, <laughs> you know, you, you, what do you mean you're not coming to the Christmas party? You're like, I don't want to. <laughs> like, <laughs> I see you all at work every day. Like I like the people, a lot of the people I work with, but like you know, it's these things, and you do. And I've had that in the past where like. One of the places I worked at previously, that exact thing, the one of the senior managers, what do you mean you're not coming to the Christmas party? Like, well, I'm away that weekend. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. But there is that force, and that moment, I am so the same with that. The moment someone's like forcing you to say things like, enjoy this. And I'm like, I don't want to know. You've taken the joy out of it, really, by enforcing it. Um, but yeah, I, I think with this thing, I, I kind of like the idea. The thing is, it's, it's that thing of, the, it's the break the metaness of this so i really enjoy the fourth dimension and, and a story i was listening to on the uh, on the special features there's a story of when this was released vincent price would uh would often go with castle when they would do some of the screenings and he would sneak in and watch them and stuff like that and on one of these he saw these two women sat at the back or young you know teenagers or whatever two ladies sat watching thoroughly enjoying it and they were screaming and all kinds of things and you know, they're all involved and, and vincent would sneak was snuck into the row behind them and just as the film ended he leaned in between them and said my dears i hope you enjoyed yourselves and apparently <laughs> these two women just absolutely threw a fit and ran out <laughs> this, this very distinctive vincent price voice just appearing out of, uh -huh. you know between you uh terrified them so especially, I, I really... well, especially with the hallucinations in the film Yes. And if you're at this heightened state of sort of terror, you yes. know, or, you know, fear, I guess, there's, there's no legitimate reason. But, you know, you turn around and you would imagine Vincent Price is there. In the audience. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what yeah. is going on? The six foot five Vincent Price is leering at yeah. you. you know? uh, no, if, uh, I, I, I love that story. Um, but yeah, the, this idea, you know, uh, of, of this film. Oh, one thing I was going to ask, actually, before we get on to is the end of this film. Because the film's not supernatural in any way. It's it's very much sort of like a science sort of base. This tingler's supposed to be a, a scientific discovery. It's a parasite that lives in us. Um, and there's obviously murder and mayhem involved. But the body of Oliver's wife is returned. And he comes home. And we've seen her sit up because the tingler's in a, it, We assume it's because the tingler is in her spine still. So that's where he gets out. But the, this film ends... With the, with the body that's already been through an autopsy. Like, we've had the tingler removed, so she's definitely dead. Her body sits up and walks towards him. Mm -hmm. And I was, every time I see this, I'm like, 
I don't know what I'm supposed. Is it is it just another sort of like a little sort of like dig at the audience? Is it supposed to be like one final scare, whatever? But I'm like, it doesn't play into the film. It, it it bothers me a little bit because it doesn't feed into anything else that's gone before. I agree with you, and and, and I think it's it's ambiguous as to what's causing that. Um, you know, is it is it the tingler? I mean, at at first when she sat up earlier, I thought, oh, this is just because uh, this happens after death, yeah. right? Um, the body moves as is it outgassing occurs, and you know, uh, muscle flax and things like this. Um, you know, bodies move around when they're dead, and that's creepy enough without. A, a weird a symbiotic <laughs> caterpillar, you know, in the spine. And so, yeah, at the end, it's, I had the same thought, and I thought, okay, it doesn't really matter, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, at this point, the movie has failed to really keep track of its characters. <laughs> it's, it, it has not really resolved yeah. like, what's going on with the, with the, the his wife uh, trying to kill him and his wife <laughs> being asked to give half her money to her sister, you know, who then like shows up and then is gone. And, you know, at at this point I just felt like, okay, clearly I know what this movie is. None of that mattered. What really matters is the scare. And this is just one last scare. Right. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, the thing is you could probably reduce, you could even reduce the cast in this film because the, 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 assistant um the, the scientist assistant and the sister you know his 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 fiance whatever don't really serve any great purpose in this film like at all other than to sort of give commentary on a couple of scenes uh when like vincent bryce is doing the fear thing is to sort of give some comment that's about it and they all sort of offer the fact that there's a, 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 a you know you have these two bad marriages and then and it's, that's quite interesting. That's the one thing I did think is interesting. You've got these two bad marriages and this young couple, and you have like Vincent Price going like, even just despite everything that's gone on with us, mm-hmm. like no, they're young and they can make this a go of this. And he still seems relatively optimistic, but everybody else is like, no, marriage is crap. And you know, when you get old, you always end up with these people. It's like I, I don't know what fifties like etiquette would be around this but i'm still like if you hate each other that much i'm sure divorce was still available um Mm -hmm. like she you know she could divorce him there's nothing stopping her she's obviously you know she's out every night with another man and all this other stuff like it seems they're trying to portray her as a villain almost but i'm still but again i'm like well yeah but he's dedicated to his career he's obviously abandoned her like yeah She's looking for some solace. Like she's looking to get some a, 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 some reaction out of him in some way. Like I don't, I don't, I sort of don't blame her to be honest. Well, I I thought that was fascinating because you see her kiss her date, right? Her yeah. at least one of her paramours, uh, if not the only one, outside before coming in. And there's you know, uh, Vincent Price comes in and she enters through the back door of yeah. the house, and you know. Uh, he says, oh, that's perfectly normal, you know, <laughs> um, and, and, and finds this sort of like tie clip. Um, and, and there's some sort of interesting dialogue about like, you know, he says, oh, it's not my style. And she says, oh, yes, it is. You know, it's like, what's that really mean? I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I like those elements. I think they're fascinating. I think to a f- 
audience in 59, the fact that she is having sex with other men mm. is just a no-go, right? I mean, she's just a yeah. villain at that point. You know, there's no sympathizing with her from that mentality. Mm. Um, and then she's portrayed as quite conniving and, and yes. lying. But, but I think what makes it really evil is that she is at her at her most murderous she is simultaneously the kindest and sweetest and yeah. so it's this sort of like stereotypical female two-face like you know um thing of like watch out for women you know mm. you don't know what their real emotions are when they're at their sweetest that's when they're the most deadly sort of femme fatale figure but then that isn't important to the plot you know and he is both horrible and and kind i i don't know yeah it doesn't even get resolved (laughs) um but yeah that's the real horror though i mean incidentally like i'm that that is an existential horror for me it's like i i have known people in in happy marriages that Mm -hmm. improve their lives uh but i've also known people whose lives were destroyed by bad choices in in partner or just bad you know their partner going crazy um you know things that couldn't you couldn't uh justify like well they could have made a better choice um and that is terrifying you know that is a real horror yeah and i think there is that thing about you know i I say i say flippantly that she could just leave him but obviously in real life that's not always an option and that sort of thing but patricia cuts who plays the wife like she's clearly having fun like she's actually really good at being this sort of like um you know, really get into being this villain, basically being conniving, and some of the dialogue she has is is really good. Uh, and I mean, Vincent Vincent Price is at one point. Um, he says that you know you hear the story of the man who comes home and he says to his wife, "Why is it every time I open the front door, I hear the back door close?" And she says to him, "Oh, like, oh dear, it's just your paranoia." Um, and it's, it's ju- just the way she delivers her lines is absolutely fantastic. It's really sort of. Um, fun to watch this sort of like venomous relationship between the pair of them um and so yeah i I do see that they're sort of obviously like you know making her out to be the villain but i can't help but sort of go like you know you're actually just fun to watch (laughs) i kind of like you when you're on screen you're really good um so yeah it's 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 difficult and also the fact is it's her family's money right he he's married in so that he can finance his science or his scientific discoveries and a scientific career, and then has abandoned her pretty much. Yeah. And like you say, he's then cruel and, and he sort of because he he attempts he pretends to shoot her to get a, to get mm. a fear reaction to see how that <laughs> to see how she reacts and then uses her as an experiment. He's no better. Like you know, we've said this before about you no, know, there's no heroes in some of the films or no protagonists, but like. Everybody, pretty much everybody in this film does something a little bit where you're like, oh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he, he he sort of pretends to shoot her. She faints. This is all very strange. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't know that it's blanks. Initially, you think, well, there's no wound, there's no blood, but maybe that's a sort of convention of, of cheap filmmaking. Yeah. And then he x-rays her. You know, and, and just quite an extended sequence as he gets <laughs> behind the... the yeah. uh, uh, the metal to protect himself um x-raying her spine <laughs> to, to find the to find the parasite that he has caused to grow inside her <laughs> like this is all insane 
And she doesn't scream. She just comes to. Right. And, but he but, seems yeah. to justify it by like, look, she is a a bad person. Yeah. And so at that point, you already know she's a bad person. So I think we're supposed to sort of feel more justified that he's experimenting on her. But then he he kills a, a, a mute. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, he, I mean, he, he was planning to murder. So <laughs> yeah, he's planning to kill somebody else, it, and, and that's where I think this film would have worked better if it had been the sort of the Seth Brundle mm-hmm. um, fall from grace. You know, sort of like oh, I found this thing, mm-hmm. I know it exists, and to, but to prove its existence, I need to do this terrible thing, and you know. I know th- th- that's not what this film is. I get that, but as a film, like if you were, if it was be- to be this scientist's sort of just you know, fall from grace, and then to result in this thing with the tingler, would have been a bit stronger. Because um, I'm never entirely sure, like you say, the the dropped line about the husband and wife, Ollie and his and his uh, his wife, mm. the two Higginses, um, them trying to kill each other. It's just bizarre. Like they they run a silent movie theater. They appear to make a lot of money from doing it, which I'm pretty sure probably wouldn't be the case. Um, I'm not sure how much money they make. I mean, they kind of bitch about the conditions, you know. Yeah. They don't seem especially happy with it. I mean, they never talk about, like, the joy of the cinema. They're playing yeah. old. I mean, this is one of those, like, you know, B movie theaters that, you know, is just trying to stay afloat mm. in... You know, it's interesting because if you see this as an, uh, another sort of, you know, aspect of the meta commentary, that the the film itself is this play on, you know, the spectacle, right, on that response to television. But it features within its plot the cinema that then becomes the uh, stand meta stand-in for the audience yeah. uh, in the theater is a small-time cinema that plays uh, silent movies and is exactly the on the opposite end of the spectrum from the expensive spectacle houses that could install these kinds of devices. Yeah, it sort of moves away from that. I mean, um, yeah, that's true. I mean, one of the weird things I've said is that there's no television shown in the you know because you see like mm. say that i wouldn't have thought that the higgins would have had a television but yeah like showing you know um <clears throat> the, the vincent price and his wife that you know the chapman's having them having a, a television something that that's the sort of house you'd expect it but yeah there's no sort of mention of it or recognition of it which is interesting one thing you did say about the silence at cinema one of the things i wanted to mention was um I've lost the damn thing. That's called. Uh, the, the, there is actually a silent film in this, or at least inserted as part of the cinema sequence at the end, which is interesting to see that people are going to see it. It's a film called Toll Abel David from 1921, which is a Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I was quite surprised at, because I'm not really up on my silent cinema, I know very little, you know, sort of the, the ones that everyone sort of knows. That film, Toll Abel David, um, the scenes you see is basically sort of like there seems to be like three men in in a cabin, in in a western setting. Like, and at one point, I swear that the guy's got like his arms like drenched in blood, and he's covered in bullet shots. I'm like, that film seemed more violent mm. than this in 1959, and I'm like, that film's from 1921. Like, it's really interesting how spectacle of cinema has 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 changed. But that film, you know, there's a fight scene and and. 
I don't know what I don't know what did you take anything from the the silent cinema scenes, the silent film? I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, I mean, as far as as far as the violence, I, I, my guess is that that film is pre Hayes Code, so uh, yes, you know yeah, the, the yeah. early silent stuff could basically get away with a lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, they were like replacing those like kinetoscopes that like you could mm-hmm. go to a pier and like you could watch some some naked women together or something. <laughs> uh, you know, with the, with a little like a viewmaster. The they called uh, it what the butler saw. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, right, exactly. Um, and, and those were those were quite popular. I, I remember seeing one as a kid at the Jersey Shore. Um, but uh, um, yeah, I I found that. There, I wondered about that, and I thought that it's another one of those like delicious or potentially delicious meta moments, right? Mm. Where you're in the cinema um, and you're being shown the cinema. You know, clearly the the you know the uh, tingler is loose in the cinema, and I love watching movies and movies. Yeah. I love that kind of stuff, but I wasn't sure like what is the commentary. You know, like Tarantino would do this and it would be, you know, all very meta and sort of like you'd see the juxtaposition of the mm-hmm. of the people, you know, like Vincent Price searching for the Tinkler in the audience, along with, you know, some sort of clear parallel on screen. And there doesn't seem to be any parallel at all. I mean, in fact, Westerns, you know, were, you know, often defined by sort of black and white morality yeah. uh, and insider outsider groups, you know, uh, the white brave men versus you know uh white criminals or or you know native americans or you mm-hmm. know very binary and yet there's there's no black and white morality in in this movie <laughs> we just talked about how everybody's so i could not figure out any kind of um, clever think, meta yeah. commentary there everyone seems to know what the film is like i was able to sort of see that the people have said oh it's this it's tall able david is the film um but everyone's sort of gone, it sounds a bit like it was available at the time. Yeah. You know, William Castle's gone, what's cheap? What hasn't <laughs> got right what hasn't got rights attached to it? <laughs> oh, this one. Great. Put that in. Um, and that's probably what it is. You know, there's probably a thing of I'm assuming there would be things if you're using um even from a form of film, like if you're using an actor's uh, likeness. Yeah, there's got to be some sort of um, royalty rights or something. So they're probably like, well, this guy's dead or he's sort of. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I mean, you know, the. It, you know, I think it was very rare in this period, you know, for uh, except for big, big, big stars to have any kind of points on films. Mm. Um, and, you know, I do know that, like, I mean, Charlton Heston was one of the the people who really. You know, his whole career was defined by taking less. He had an agent, apparently, who told him the thing to do is to take less money. So you never price yourself out of the market and just get points on everything. You know, be like, I'll take half a salary. Give me one percent on the back end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that worked for him. But I think that in general, there was a very work for hire era. Well, I think they could have just done whatever the hell they wanted. Yeah, probably. I mean, there was that whole thing of like contracts. You were contracted to a studio, weren't you? That sort of thing. And you did so many years for them and yeah. trying to get as many films out of you as possible. Um, I know, plus morality clauses, you know, where they yeah. could they would have for the big stars. I mean, it was like back, you know, Fatty Arbuckle before, way back in the day. 
where, you know, you would have the studio come in and clean up messes. You know, you'd be caught mm. like somebody would take a photo of you with your mistress and, you know, the studio goes and speaks to that person and pays them off. And that's just, <laughs> yeah. you know, as if they're in charge of your public image. I know that Errol Flynn, there's a lot of that sto- those stories with Errol Flynn. And I don't know how far they go, but he was, uh, you know, he was a philanderer at the best of time. So um, it's, it's in, I always find it interesting. They call it like the golden age of cinema. <laughs> and it was like, is that golden age? It was always like this first year. It was called the golden age. It's, like, it's not really the best age, though, is it? Like, it's clear there was like, it was probably a horrible place to be for some people. Um, yeah, well, well, even stars, I mean, you think what they were subjected to. Um, I mean, we're talking about an era where, like when you see images of horses falling off a cliff, those are real horses they <laughs> yeah. killed, right? I mean, you know, that was just how it was done back then. And they just put guys on top of those horses. They put yeah. people in horrible situations. Um, remember the uh, the pilot for the Star Trek, where no man has gone before. There was permanent damage from those eye those contacts that were metal contacts that were way thicker than like a modern contact. <laughs> they forced the actors to like put this in their eyeballs and you know just the paint all over their bodies and lead and, and nobody cared you know it was just like look do you want this job or not and yeah know, yeah so, it was not a good era <laughs> no not a golden age at all really um it is interesting though. One final sort of point I want to make is is this idea of fear of sort of like we've gone through the fifties, and in the next episode we're going to do a, a bit of a reflection on this bulk, really, sort of you know this block of films we've looked at. But sci-fi and horror, in particular, you know, we've we've touched on a little bit in this time, really changes. Like something seems to change at this point. Like from sixty onwards, you start to get a very different. Um, you know, it's, you get Psycho, then you get sort of Rosemary's Baby and uh, um, Peeping Tom. All these other films start to come out in the sixties, and these films of the fifties seem to get left behind. Even the sci-fi, of the sort of the sixties, is is very different. I mean, you, you know, we we by sixty sixty when was Star Trek sixty six? Yeah, sixty six, sixty seven. I think is that first. Yeah. So yeah, sixty six. Uh, I mean, that's, so that's television, really. But still, you you have this you know, this idea of science fiction starts to really change in the sixties, um, and you know, this idea, this film taps into that idea with the meta thing of like say what you said about TV and this other thing. It's 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 aware. It seems very self aware that it's like, yeah, we're at the end of an era and we are holding on to something. You know, really, we really are trying to hold on to this past era, this past idea of what these films are and what this era was and what cinema is, and it passes into something very new. And you get a whole bunch of different new new filmmakers in the sixties. Um, well, yeah, and you and you have you know more spectacles, you have more auteurism. Hmm. But you know, I also you know thinking about this as a transition film. Um, you know, let, let's spend a minute and sort of talk about sci-fi as a genre, um, mm. because you know, science fiction is—I mean, whatever. I mean, anything's a genre if you say it's a genre, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, what defines it? Certain tropes, 
but they're not you can have a sci-fi western you can have you know a a, a sci-fi um adventure story you can have you know sci-fi realism where it's just a you know you're fo- you could have i mean you could follow vincent price and his wife and the only thing that's going on is like you see the tingler in the background and it's a sci-fi element mm. i mean and and really you know some films uh that's the most fascinating thing it's sort of like how how do these people deal with their normal lives in this sci-fi setting? Um, so, you know, in some ways, like sci-fi isn't a genre. It's it's a collection of elements that that are or are not present. Um, and, you know, in some ways, that's why I love sci-fi so much is you can do anything with it, right? Mm. It's not limited. Like a Western has to basically be in the old West, right? Mm. You know? There are certain, you know, you're limited in a way. Um, sci-fi, basically, you need something that is not supernatural, but is an extension of currently known science. And as long as you have that one element, basically, you know, there's a sci-fi element. Um, but it seems to me that sci-fi is, in the 60s, it's more yeah. defined as a genre. Mm. Um, now, when we go to... We finished our 60s block. The first 60s movie is Eyes Without a Face, which is really just they can do a face transplant. That's the only sci-fi element. There's no aliens. You know, yeah. So it's more like it's closer to the Tingler um, in that sense. But um, it seems to me with that aside, when you get to stuff like 2001, I mean, that is a sci-fi movie. Mm. Really, you know, most of these 50s movies like them. What is them? It's really a monster movie, right? Yeah. With sci-fi elements. And I mean, the same thing is true, like, you know, Frankenstein, that's clearly sci-fi, but I I think of it primarily as horror, as a, mm-hmm. as a monster movie. Um, and so I think that sci-fi was more, at least in cinema, was more sort of inchoate. I think in all of these movies, like, it's it's a blend, it's an element that's there along with these other genres. And it's really starting in the 60s. I mean, it's present, obviously, before. I mean, some of the most fantastic stuff. I mean, you know, Forbidden Planet, one of my favorite. That's a straight-up science fiction movie, and that's Mm -hmm. earlier than this. But I think that over time, more and more sci-fi sort of becomes its own genre. It sort of diverges. And so when you get to the 60s, it feels different in part because... This 50 stuff, which we love, is more like, bam, bam, pow, let's make an exciting movie. <laughs> you know, sure. I mean, you know, going to the moon or whatever is just thrown in as part of a disaster movie. It's, you know, um, whereas in the 60s that happens, but it becomes more defined as a genre with its own tropes that you couldn't just take those sci-fi elements out and replace them, you know, and you, with Supernatural or something else and, and have the same movie. Yeah, they're more of a pure um, element. You know, it was, it's more of a pure representation of that genre. That's what you say. I mean, to me, I, I, I agree. I think that's an interesting point because I think it was, uh, I have this theory that exists in my brain that's sort of you know, I I, I have these theories, but <laughs> is is it? <laughs> yeah, we we both have these things, uh, but th- this one is basically that no film is a single genre. Mm-hmm. Like, it's 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 that turn t- it's that sort of editor's table again you know you you move things up and down but everything is got um you know a secondary genre 
you know, like you say, like you, the, the, the sci-fi horror, the sci-fi comedy, the sci-fi whatever. But then you can also flip them. You know, that thing of like saying, oh, it's a comedy sci-fi. Like, yeah, the predominant, the predominant genre is comedy. Like, this is set up for laughs, but it's in a sci-fi environment. Um, and the same with horror. Like you say, the, the, you know, com- you know sci-fi, science fiction horror. Alien is a really good example. Mm-hmm. Is in, yeah, it's a sci-fi horror film. But could you transplant that entire different that story somewhere else? Yeah, of course you could. I mean, that could literally be, you could do that about truckers picking up something, you know, some kind of monster at a warehouse, and it, you know, something. Or you know, there are different, numerous ways of doing it. But it's still a science fiction horror it's in space, and then you get those. But then you get the turntable. You probably zap one up, and even for westerns, I mean, it's location based. You couldn't. You know, initially, I would say that westerns were location based. They had the the reason they were called westerns is because they took they took place on the west part of America for the most part. Like, um, there was a whole subgenre called southerns, apparently, mm. which had things like Django in and, and these other things. Even I'd uh, apparently suggested the spaghetti westerns are sort of r- r- more like southerns than they are westerns. Um. But you get that idea. But now you get like an urban western, or you mm-hmm. can get a sci-fi western. I think like High Noon is a really good example that got transplanted and became Outland. Or, um, you know, I mean, sci-fi seems to love that. Sometimes takes western tropes and just says, "Do you know what would be really cool? Rio Bravo in space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go do that." And you get a sci-fi western. So. You know, they become the concepts, and I think so. I agree with what you're saying, but there's that sort of turntable of where they ramp one up, and sci-fi definitely has that. Where you go like, oh, you, this is all ninety percent sci-fi, but there's still that ten percent which is another genre. Um, and like you say, so you can't take away the sci-fi because it's fully sci-fi. But that's and that's really confidence. That's about a confidence. Like, you know, we are going full-on science fiction, and 2001 is a really good example of that. Because you can't take out the sci-fi elements, but there's others where you go 50-50. You could probably transplant some of that and move it to Earth or whatever. Um, and I, I, but I find that fascinating when they do that. When you see films and, and people will debate it, like there was a woman from I believe The Guardian recently that said she doesn't believe that science fiction uh, that horror can be in space. And you sort of scratch your head and go, uh, but it, it's the, these things don't have to be location based. It's about how you set right. them up. And I think science fiction is one of those great ones. It's like you say, you could have a film like Primer, mm-hmm. which is a really sort of small, low-budget film where the sci-fi is, you know, is is a major part of that. But the other part of that is actually it's a film about a bunch of friends that start to have a disagreement about a business venture. Yeah. And, well, yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the thing is that... Um... You know, people confuse. I remember back in the day, and people still make this error about like confusing medium with genre, right? Yes. It was like the medium is a comic book. The comic book does not equal superhero. The genre is superhero. Yeah. But I think I think you're right that that everything has multiple genres. I think that's correct. I think that like you were talking about, you know, transplanting the western or. You know, I mean, this absurd notion that you can't have horror in space, right? Yeah. I mean, sometimes people get too caught up in the definition of a genre, right? So when you talk about like a Western, well, the classic Western, we haven't made a classic Western for 40, 
60 yeah. years. I mean, that classic Western was filled with revisionist history, uh, overwhelmingly white male protagonists who, mm-hmm. you know, are the sole defender of law and order and, you know, very black and white morality. Obviously, spaghetti Western upsets that. But, you know, the sort of classic Western was very much that sort of, you know, I mean, cowboys predominantly weren't white. I mean, none of this yeah. was was accurate. But so by the time you get to like Unforgiven, Unforgiven isn't a Western according to that strict definition. Mm. But clearly that genre then grows and adapts. Mm-hmm. And if you mm-hmm. and if you attempt to define the genre as like, you know, point one, clearly define morality. Well, the all genres evolve. They're not a technical, precise term the way a medium is. Um, and so all genres evolve. They subvert themselves. Um, you know, I mean, your point about having overlapping genres is true of every single comedy. Because mm. comedy just means it's designed to be funny. Yeah. You know, if, if it's a comedy that also, like, you know, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is a comedy that's also a drama. You know, it's about a messed up guy who doesn't have anywhere to go on Christmas. I mean, that is a serious drama, Um, you know. And so, I mean, you can have, you know, I mean, that's a dramedy. And, you know, and then there are spectrums even beyond genre where uh, spectrums of sort of how much comedy is present, Mm. but also how much realism. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, like you mentioned, 2001, 2001 is in a sense, super hard sci-fi, but it's also, I, if my first reaction was, yeah, it's also very concerned for realism, but it's also fundamentally a mystical movie. It mm. has a lot more in common with, like, some some weird, um, you know, Jodorowsky uh, movie than it does with uh, most realistic dramas. No, that's true, and I think that's the thing, is that, you know, and, and I love the fact that, uh, that... You know, we say this about we were saying this about cinema about what what people would be scared of in fifty six or fifty nine and what they would be intolerable to now. Every um, genre evolves uh, and becomes more nuanced as well. I mean, you know, I was literally having a conversation recently about action movies about this and sort of like the birth of the action movie in the eighties is very lumpy and it's literally sort of like you know it's Arnie or Stallone or a couple of others sort of like and they're all the same. Okay single protagonist takes on large numbers for for whatever purpose and sort of like you know action ensues that's it and then but then it sort of it grew and it defined and becomes more nuanced and then you're like okay well now we've got a martial artist and now we've got this and that and we're going to introduce the asian elements with jackie chan and and you know and i love the fact that these changes and that's that's the truth isn't it so if you can go back and watch these films uh, and I think sci-fi is a really one of the things I've, I will talk about in the next episode. But one of the things I'm lo- looking back at these fifties ones is these ideas and going, this is how sci-fi was represented, or you know, the, the science fiction genre was mixed with other things during the fifties. These were the concerns, these were the things that were on people's minds, or this was the stuff that they wanted to talk about, or this was just how they saw the world, you know, in in America. Uh, and then you sort of look at it and go, well, that's very 50s. It, 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 it's mm. time-bound, because then you say, you know, you move into the 60s and there's very different concerns. I think, obviously, cultural changes and social norms start to shift, and then you, you are, you're able to have films, and you end up with films like 
2001, where you go, yeah, the end of this film is incredibly trippy. And, you know, you have it can be interpreted in a number of different ways. You couldn't really interpret some of these other films. I think, you know, um, uh, you know, um, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, pretty much only one, to inter- one way to interpret it. It's good fun, and it has certain things in it, but, like, it's very straightforward. And I think, yeah, so I think the evolution is becomes a bit more sophisticated and a bit more open to that sort of, like, you know, mixture of different things. I think as we come into some of these other films we're going to talk about, especially for this season, we've got all kinds of things you see that evolution of going like, yeah, we can do all kinds of things. Twist this knob here and twist that knob there and you get something completely different. Yeah. Yeah, and Earth versus Flying Saucers is is sort of a classic science fiction in that, mm. you know, when you think of sci-fi from the 50s, it seems very pure sci-fi. And yet, in a sense, I mean, it has, it's an action movie, right? I mean, it's focused yeah. on the spectacle. Um, you know, talking about genre... Uh, genres have to evolve or they mm. die, right? You yes. can't just keep making, you know, Vincent Price can be the uh, white male brainiac scientist and he can get away with this stuff. You cannot do that today. We ask different questions. Um, yes. And for everybody complaining about like social consciousness in, uh, you know, like, you know, get out as a, as a, you know, example mm. of like sci-fi plus social consciousness. Well, we were always doing that. Genres always merge with other genres and attempt to find some way to renovate, to make new again, um, that experience in the same way, you know, Unforgiven is a complete reinvention mm. of the Western from, from the, the, the old stuff. Um, and you just can't get away with some of the old stuff because we ask questions that we didn't before. We are more aware of representation. Um, And that's not a bad thing. You know, genres just have to evolve. Mm. Um, And so I think, you know, we have to make our peace with that. Uh, And and often those those genre movies that are, I think what's fascinating isn't necessarily the movies that set a new uh, benchmark and become influential for, you know, uh, like in horror, you know, you get to a point where there's no forward energy and then you get something like Scream, you know, yeah. that it's just like we're going to take all those cliches and consciously know them and have fun. And then you get mm. to sort of like Saw and Hostel and sort of body horror. Um, but uh, and then you get sci fi stuff that has body horror. You know, I mean, you know, obviously that's prefigured by the fly to some mm. degree and, and everything Cronenberg. Um, anyway, I mean, I think that. I think one of the things that's interesting is also the alternate routes that these genres could have evolved in. The stuff that was new and was going in a different direction, yeah. but just didn't take off the way those movies did. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think, you know, if, if the thing that had made all the money had been the spectacle, had been um, the gimmicks, mm. if that's the thing that had caught on, I think, like I say, cinema would be very different in the sixties. If everyone was like, "No, no, you've got to, have, you've got to have," how would that have escalated? Right. Well, we started with buzzing seats. Yeah. You know, now part of the part of the cinema's got to burn down, and you know, <laughs> we're going to pump, we're going to pump lava in or something. I don't know. Sort of. But yeah, you, you could obviously you've got to keep building on those spectacles and those those interaction things. So, um, I'd, I'd, I'd be interested to see how that would have escalated. Um. 
anyway, I think I think we sort of uh, we've talked about a lot about because it sort of I think this sort of shows that the Tingler sort of taps into a moment in history, but the film itself is is well I like the film it's fun but I don't think it's it's it's, it's particularly deep or doing anything. But what are your final thoughts then on on the Tingler? Well, I love the meta stuff. Obviously, the meta stuff is the the stuff that mm. stays with me, and also as a as a cultural remnant of this time of experimentation with uh, theaters and going in a way that ultimately sort of became the amusement park theatrical mm. experience. Um, it is as a final thought. I love how sh- like I it's absurd, but I love how murderous the Tingler is. <laughs> like I love the like it's, it's an alien. It's not alien, but it's a sort of being that inhabits all of us. You know, I mean, it's a kind of daft but cool idea. Uh, mm. But I, I love that anytime it gets loose, it's just like knows the human neck. And it's like, I'm going to get my pincers around <laughs> the human neck. Like it craves murder. And I, I kind of love that about this. Like it's kind of demonic in, in a way. I love the fact they say it feeds on fear, but at no point do they explain how they know that or how it does it. It just through osmosis. It, 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 you know, not that fear generates a chemical in the body and it absorbs that. No, it just feeds on fear. Um, I, I love, I do enjoy this film, and you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Vincent Price fan, so I love all the schlocky sort of stuff that you know, um, and some of, and some of the more dramatic stuff. But this film sort of hits the sweet spot for me in that it's sort of this partnered with. House on Haunted Hill, the the, the 1959 William Castle film. There's like it's just that moment in history, that moment in time when they were trying to do something for cinema, knowing that you know that actually this maybe they've got to compete with TV, they've got to compete with these other things, and doing this stuff is really cool. And so I do, I do enjoy the sort of the the silliness of this film, and the fact that like you say, this film was actually made in 12 days. Oh really. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, and I believe it was written in three and made in twelve. <laughs> so, you know, it shows the, the cinemas were banging this stuff out, and, and William Castle was more about the spectacle. And I just, uh, it's it, it, it's one of those times of you know we talk about auteur cinema, you know, and, and later on that appears on screen, and I find that sort of William Castle's probably got more in common with P.T. Barnum or one of those like you say circus performers where it's less about the quality of the film like he's not going to have a distinctive shot you know he's not going to use a certain type of panning or anything like that it's more that his films are a, a, a theme park attraction and and that sort of really appeals to me so i think it's really fun and i'm glad we've got to talk about some of the bits and pieces um but that's our 50s block really we've done we've done, and i've really enjoyed it and i'm not going to spoil anything i've got some thoughts but save that for the next episode um and we will be coming back to talk about all the films that we've talked about uh, and recap them and, and before we move on to our main sort of uh, uh, the rest of the season. And we'll give the ratings yes. for the, the 50s film. Yes. And hopefully get into some uh, interesting arguments. Yeah, this one might this one might actually go. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think we will. I think it'll be, um, you know... Um, and you know, so we're going to be going back, and I think you know, any chance to quickly to, to touch back on Quatermass and other things as well. So I'm really looking forward to just round this out. But don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, this is just the start. This is just the beginning of this season. We've done our fifties block. We did a special de- decade de- devoted to the decade, and we are going to be moving up on out. And we've got all kinds of stuff coming up. You mentioned uh, Julie, got Eyes Without a Face. Um, we've got uh, Star Trek: The Motion Picture, Buckaroo Bonsai. Um, uh, 
Vanilla Sky, uh, uh, The Man Who Fell to Earth. So many different things. We've got such a variety. We've got a Stallone film coming up. We've got we've got Gattaca. I haven't watched Gattaca in years. I'm so excited to talk about that film because I, I was all about that film for a period in the 90s. So very excited to go back and talk about that. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, lots and lots to look forward to. Um, you know, killer plants, DNA uh-huh. manipulation, and uh, uh, aliens. So, all of it, fantastic sci-fi stuff. So, Julian, thank you as always. A fantastic conversation. Really enjoyed it. I um, love it as always. And we're at at time at pod time space. Ex- oh yeah, Christ, yes. Come find us at pod time space. Tell us what you think before we get to the next episode. What have you thought about our fifties block? Have you enjoyed it? What you know? Should we do another decade dedication? We've covered quite a few others, but uh, let us know what you think. Come find us at pod time space. Uh, but other than that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much, and uh, we shall see you on the next episode. I'm returning my vibrator. <laughs>